I'm Jimmy Adams, and I've been having fun, fun, fun in the sun, sun, sun. I'm Ian McAllister, and I like to ride my bicycle. My name's Ross, and I don't know where I am. This is Brainwaves, bringing you the best in board game and tabletop gaming news. These are the headlines for the week of the 29th of April, 2019. Kickstarter clamps down in a colossal fashion. Think hard about the Mensa Select Awards. And none of us won any Golden Geeks. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Before we start with the headlines, we'd just like to give a big welcome to Ross from More Games Please, who will be joining us as our first roving reporter. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. So for those who don't know what More Games Please is, yes, it is a description of how we all collect within the hobby, but it's also a website where I interview board game artists to get a closer look at their art. I also have an Instagram account where I cover what I'm playing and also uh, more of a kind of look at uh, at the games that I have my eye on uh, and I've tried not necessarily own. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's some beautiful photos on there. We will link to Ross's uh, social media accounts in the show notes. Ross is the first of many guests who are going to be joining us in the Brainwave studio and helping us out while Sam is away meddling with the space-time continuum and doing whatever he can. Back to the podcast. So our first headline this week is a little bit of an odd one. Over the last few days, a situation has been developing in the world of Kickstarter. It seems that Kickstarter has been clamping down on Colossal Games Kickstarters. It started with them cancelling Hunt the Ravager as it started its campaign. They have also cancelled... Uh, Folding Space, which is from Maple Games, and we'll come back to why that's significant in a second. And they have also cancelled Papillon, which was another colossal game, after it had completed and finished funding. Now, it seems to be that that what has happened is that colossal games have been trying to produce multiple Kickstarters through multiple different accounts. Colossal Micro was Hunt the Ravager. The colossal main account was doing the Papillon one. And Maple Games was doing Folding Space. Now, Maple Games has a connection to Colossal in that Tanguy Vincent Serra is the director of Maple Games and also the chairman of Colossal Games. So there's a lot of connected stuff going on there with the same people basically running multiple Kickstars at once. Kickstarter has got rules about this kind of thing, about running concurrent Kickstars you're not meant to. They've been a little bit odd about enforcing their own rules in the past but they seem to have really come down hard on this one maple games also dismissed its president daryl andrews on the april the 16th we're not quite sure what that's about at this point there, there's been a statement basically saying i've uh, i'm i'm still one of the founders but i have left as as a director uh, sorry as the as the president uh, this message was sent out to backers of papillon uh, so this is a message from kickstarter's trust and safety team Writing to let you know that a project you recently backed has been suspended. We also want to assure you that your pledge has been cancelled. To protect the community, we may suspend projects when they demonstrate one or more of the following. And they go on to list a, a bunch of different possibilities of a, of a Kickstarter being um, suspended. Uh, we take the integrity of the Kickstarter system very seriously. We only suspend projects when we find strong evidence that they are misrepresenting themselves or otherwise violating the letter or spirit of Kickstarter's rules. 
Uh, we know this isn't ideal, but we do sincerely hope to see you again back in one or more of the amazing projects, etc., etc. There has been a statement from Travis Chance, who's uh, one of the directors of Colossal Games. This Wednesday, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase this a little bit. Uh, this Wednesday, you helped us back uh, Papillon from Colossal Games, designed by JB Howell, an illustration by Whitney Raider. It's an excellent game, etc. Unfortunately, we've been notified by Kickstarter that the campaign was suspended and our backer pledges have been cancelled or refunded. Now, this was after the Kickstarter had finished. Uh, and the team is currently the causal team is currently working to understand these issues and hope to resolve the situation very soon. What do we think about this, guys? Yeah, so for me, for me personally, it's one of those things that when it's a a new company you've never heard of and they release a number of uh, kickstarts or they run a number of kickstarts concurrently, it's troubling and it's it's yeah. one of those things that from a community standpoint and there's a. a piece of news a little later that we'll get to which highlights why something like this can be a concern uh, no spoilers uh, but it's, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where if you allow companies as a rule to run multiple campaigns through multiple sub uh, you know kickstarter platform accounts, pla- yeah. not pla- accounts yeah exactly uh, then it's 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 it sets a bad precedent it's it's strange that they this is the only account or only series of accounts that i'm aware of where this has been a thing however yeah. it's also one of the few companies that i'm aware of that have multiple accounts you know that have connected employees or connected owners that are running concurrent campaigns so it's a very unusual situation and maybe they're just making an example of them in this regard to kind of send a message it's a weird one because like a lot of people are saying like well what about common minis for instance they I mean they run a lot of kickstarter campaigns one after another and but they've mostly funded most of their stuff and, they, and it's mostly well sorry it's mostly got to backers who's this but i think the thing that uh, uh simon cool mini or not for ladies yeah a lot of people are saying like oh if, if you're going to do causal games then why not do kill money cool mini or not as well and i think that the difference here is like ross was saying is they've obviously tried to have multiple accounts including one that isn't even under the colossal name. Also, Cool Mini or Not are in various stages of fulfillment of their various projects, yeah. where a lot of these were successfully funded and there was either no communication or there was a lack of it and it was just repeating one after the other. We'll, we'll certainly bring you more on this as the situation develops. Like we say, this is this is very new at the time of recording. By the time the cast goes out, we might have more information, and I'll drop in a wee breaking news if that is the case. All right, so next up, we've got the Mensa Select Award. Mensa, known as the society where they are smarter than you, and they also want you to know that. Uh, so every year, they have a list of games that they uh Choose after over 40 hours of play. There's a big group of them that get together and they'll play a series of games over like, you know, a 40 plus hour game board gaming judging marathon uh, where they give something the coveted, their words, not mine, Mensa Select seal of approval. Um, And it's 300 of the country's most avid board gaming fans who happen to be uh, Mensa members that are part of that judging panel. So the the games that have been selected uh, on the list uh, are Architects of West Kingdom by Renegade Game Studios. We've got Gizmos from Simon Inc. We've got Gunkimono from Renegade Game Studios, uh, Planet from Blue Orange Games, and Victorian Masterminds, again from Simon. Uh, so that's th- well, t- three publishers that have, 
you know, cleaned up two of which have four of the five games. It makes me curious how large the pool of games was they were working yeah, from if they yeah. managed to pick four of their five winners from only two publishers. You know, that could be coincidental, but it does make me raise questions about the selection process. I, I didn't think Victorian Masterminds was even out in full retail yet. I thought... I might be wrong on that. Yeah, I'll, I'd need to check on that. I, I, I'm yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, it, it would be interesting to see what the selection process was. I mean, there's there's so many games come out every year. Like, oh, just on the last cast, we were talking about the number of games that come out in the brainstorm section. It's like it was like something like three thousand last year. So, how do you even begin anyway. to parse that selection down to like that many games? But you know, how do we look at this? And the the people who are taking part in it, the judges. Yes, it's forty plus hours, but. They each judge has to play up to 30 games from start to finish and complete and submit a comment card for each game played, each time it's played, which that wording leads one to assume that they're playing 30 games from start to finish multiple times, which they should, because you, you, can, you can't play yeah. a game only once and have a fully formed opinion of it, especially if you're wanting to hand out awards. Well, we are talking about the Mensa people here, so you're Still. you're giving it average mind rules. You know, these Still. are the creme de la creme. <laughs> oh. Their words, not mine. No, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> they, they can play Twilight. They can play a whole game of Twilight Imperium in only an hour. They're playing thirty games at the same time. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they're they're scoring in aesthetics, originality, play value, play appeal, and quality of instructions. Yeah, I mean. We might mock the process a little bit, but it is good to see any sort of like any sort of advertising for the board game hobby outside of the hobby itself. And Mensa is a well-respected organization from, from a lot of people's point of view, so them highlighting a few board games isn't harmful. Though I do agree with Ross that I'd be interested to see what the selection process actually was. I also think it's it's you know it's it's great for any wider you know organizations to take an interest in the tabletop top community and what and what we're doing. And to be fair. There's probably a pretty rigorous uh, thing in place. I'll poke fun at it because I feel like I can. But it, like you say, it's <laughs> it's it, it's nice. It's nice to see. It's just obviously, you know, a little bit more visibility might be useful. Yeah. And sticking with awards. Yep, awards season is rolling around again, and it keeps on going. The 13th annual Golden Geek Awards have been announced recently. The Golden Geek Awards are voted on by the users of the Board Game Statistics website and overlord of all, Board Game Geek. There were 16 categories this year, and favourites of the year, Root and The Mind, came away with the most amount of wins. The Mind scooped Best Card Game, Best Cooperative Game, and Best Party Game. And Root came away with Most Innovative Game, Most Thematic Game, Award for Artwork and Presentation, and the coveted Board Game of the Year. Interesting to note that the Golden Geek Awards also include a print-and-play category and also a board game app. Uh, that is one that is transferred over to an app, not a app integrated. There's also a podcast category, and your favourite podcast didn't win, weren't even nominated. It's, you know, nice to be thought of, but um, we can get past it. We're mature. Um, it's also worth noting that the Brainwave's favourite, Keyforge, won the two-player game category. 
seems well deserved. What do you think of the artwork and presentation category, Ross? Do you think Root deserved to win that? I really can't argue with that. I uh, it didn't win. It didn't win the award on my website. So all the listeners out there, I also had uh, my my uh, my award was first. By the way, uh, anyway, that's splitting hairs. Um, no, so there was a there's there's a best. I did a best ball game out of the year vote. It was a public vote, and then it was based on public nominations. And and Root came second, and. Everdell won my list, um, so it's okay. interesting to see. It's basically the top two have been reversed for Board Game Geek. Uh, so you know, obviously, the general consensus is two very good-looking games uh, with anthropomod anth- anthropomorphic. I'm glad you're here. Animals um, <laughs> that are part of the cast. So is that a particular thing that was just popular? Are those two games thought of in a similar mind, and that's why we saw them? Or is it just a reflection that they're both very good-looking games that happen to come out at a similar time? Also, the runner-up in the artwork and presentation category, the second runner-up, was Brass Birmingham. Also on the list on my website. There you go. It's a very good-looking game. don't think it's a game I'll ever play. It's not really my kind of thing, but it's a very good-looking game. I'd probably give it at least one try. And I think this might cement also in the minds of people who say... The mind isn't a game. Uh, I think you'll find it is sunshine. As far as the, as far as the users of Board Game Geek are concerned, yep, it's a game. But that's not saying Board Game Geek is always right. It's a saying, as far as they're concerned, for these awards. Anyway, on with the news, gentlemen. It's. Over the last few days, uh, it's come out that Steve Jackson is Steve Jackson Games are going to be offering refunds after ethical concerns have emerged from them partnering up with Frog God Games. Now, last year, Steve Jackson Games kickstarted uh, the Fantasy Trip, which was one of their old RPGs, had a lot of love amongst the community, and they kickstarted a new version of that. And they are now looking to produce some expansions down the line, and one of the companies they brought on to work with them on that is Frog God Games. Now, there's a member of Frog God Games called Bill Webb. He's one of the founders of the company. He has previously been accused and admitted to sexual harassment at a con. Uh, this has obviously incensed some backers that uh, Steve Jackson Games would even consider working with a company that contains an individual like this. There's a statement from Steve Jackson, which I'm going to read verbatim just now. It was in reply to some questions from the community on this. I have read in its entirety the 2017 EN thread that Chris pointed to, EN, EN World is an RPG website, and I do understand that a number of posters there are incensed at Bill Webb. To me, that does not justify that Steve Jackson Games boycotting a whole company. Some very good things are coming out of our work with Frog God. Three different projects are underway, and I don't expect them to be the last. If that makes you wish you had not supported our adventures campaign, we'll work with you to refund your pledge, minus the fees already charged by Kickstarter, Stripe, and Backerkit. Now, this may be the first time that an rpg company has offered refunds due to community concerns with all the controversy with uh, the zach s um controversies earlier in the year that we covered a couple of podcasts back with wizards of the coast and dungeons and dragons there was no offer from those companies to refund people for the products they had bought what do we think about this guys it's 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 quite a tricky subject to talk about because there's a lot of there's a lot of heat out there about it there's a lot of people who are very incensed about it i don't fully know what to think myself. What, what, what do you guys think? I think it comes down to should the actions of one individual tarnish the reputation of the whole company? Yeah, and probably not. But should Steve Jackson have chosen different people to work with? Did they are were they 
it sounds like maybe they weren't aware of the problem beforehand. Should they have been? How much? Do, basically, how much due diligence should a company do? Like, do they need to? Should they vet every single person in the company before working with them? That seems impossible. I think it's difficult because you don't, from Steve Jackson's perspective, he obviously, or, or you'd assume, he it seems like it's something he wasn't aware of. It was just something, you know, a, a conversation that he wasn't a part of uh, before any decisions were made, and so they've gone to a certain point through the process, and and now there, are, now this is kind of information that's been revealed to him, which has obviously put him in a very difficult position. With a character like Bill Webb, uh, obviously, I don't know a lot about what went down at the time however you've got to have um kind of as much as you don't want it to tarnish a, a you know a company's reputation and, and whether or not you can work with them if he's still a part of that organization and he's still an important part of that organization you have to question whether or not it's yeah. it's good from any perspective to to mm-hmm. be seen to be working with him if if that's the reputation he brings with him and what does that say to the community Mm. Yeah, that's fair. that's a completely fair point. Should Frog God Games have part of company with them before now? And it, it seems like the answer is almost definitely yes. Um, why they haven't is um, something to be found out down the line. And th- that situation is still developing, so we'll we'll probably cover that more once a bit more information has come out about exactly what's happened. And I think it's good that Steve Jackson are offering refunds to people who don't want to um, don't want to get that product anymore. Feel it's been tarnished. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation and we'll hopefully get more information as that situation develops. Okay, so from uh, a couple of interesting refund slash crowdfunding stories, Solar City Kickstarter has collapsed in a case of actual, genuine, where's my wallet gone? Oh, it's that guy running down the street. Fraud. Uh, so yeah. Solar City was a game with the originally funded uh, with... Nearly $68,000 for a 15000 goal on Kickstarter. And back in February, uh, it's just becoming public knowledge now, uh, to the wider public at least, that the CEO has resigned and, and actually fled the country, <laughs> which is something I have don't think I've ever heard of before. Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever heard of someone fle- fleeing the country outside of films, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I would imagine, you know, if you're going to flee, you might just not answer your emails or phone. Leaving the country, that's some real, that's some real next level stuff going on there. Well, if you yeah. pardon, if you pardon me for for being bringing up recent political events, but let's say Julian Assange. Yeah, I mean, he, he could have found himself into an Ecuadorian embassy probably quite easily with that kind of money. <laughs> that's not fair. That's not fair to anyone involved. <laughs> Yeah, so what, what's happened around that campaign is that uh, it seems like the rest of the company sort of picked up the pieces, realized that there are basically a huge number of debts still to pay. Um, apparently, 1.400 of the game were printed and then they just vanished. 1. Some of them appeared in Finland at once. Sorry, uh, at 1. Uh, sorry, 400 sorry. units of the game were printed, um, then disappeared. Some apparently turning up in Finland at one point, mysteriously. Um, the company basically has no means to refund, continue production rights for the games returned to the authors yeah the whole thing's just collapsed horribly as an aside do you think whenever you lose any of your board game components they just show up in finland is that is that where is that where, <laughs> Maybe where that's where missing components go it is now it is the repository of all components that go lot go missing how do some just show up in finland i don't really under- and, and who found yeah. who found them 
No, no, nobody knows, but they just know. It's like they they just got to go to Finland. From what I read, like they showed up on some store somewhere, and the guy would not tell anyone where he got. Uh, okay. Yeah. Wow, that is shady. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the team have got all sorts of legal troubles to deal with. Um, they are they are incredibly apologetic. We'll put a link to their um, their update in the show notes. They're incredibly apologetic. They're totally devastated. I believe the original authors and designers are trying are tr- going to try and get the game out there at some point. I don't know how that's going to happen or whether it's going to take into account the original backers. But uh, when this kind of thing happens, when it, someone has genuinely defrauded a bunch of their friends, effectively and being a bit of an bit of an ass try not i know it's really disappointing to the backers and we totally sympathize with the backers but please try not to go after them because they've had a lot of sort of angry nasty comments on the kickstar and it doesn't really help very much it's i know it's incredibly disappointing but being angry at the people who are also completely devastated that their their company and game have collapsed i don't really it, it's not the anyone. author's fault that the guy committed yeah. fraud yeah, I mean, actual genuine... I, I followed Kickstarter a lot from its early days because I find it a really interesting platform. I, I followed it through a lot of the early tech stuff. And actual genuine fraud is vanishingly rare. Like, really, really rare. I think as well from, like, you know, obviously all the backers will think, you know, that they've been defrauded as well. But yeah, if, absolutely. If, if, you, if, you, if you take it for what's happened, if, if, if the way it's been laid out is true, which obviously... We don't we don't know, but if you you know if what we're told is true that the the CEO has just cut and run with a whole bunch of money, sure you may have you know been you may have not been supplied with the product yourself, but the absolute storm that the people involved in this project are going to be involved in now legally and financially, yeah, like you, everyone just needs to give them a minute just to and and there's, there's been questions of why it took so long for them to publicly announce it, and if you think they've got to try and get all their ducks in a row to a certain extent, if if that many people, nearly a thousand people, are going to be told. Hey, guess what? You're probably not going to be getting anything anytime soon. Then that the the fallout from that is going to be pretty massive, yeah. and so it's no wonder that they've taken a little while to try and figure out how to unpick this, um, and and from a legal angle and from all of the different angles they can think of. And now we go over to our financial correspondent Ian McAllister with the Brainwaves financial report. Yep, there's a lot of financial news coming out of the hobby, so we're going to romp through this because a little of it's a bit dry, but we'll maybe have a wee chat about it as well. GW is first up. They have recently announced their profit predictions for 2019. They're predicting a profit of 80 million in 2019, up from 74.5 million in the last year. Uh, this is a bit of a change of tone from them. They were in October 2018. They were net warned that UK trading conditions. Brexit could affect profits, but that seems to have been unfounded for them. It seems that new licensing revenue has helped. They've been licensing a lot of their games to a lot of new companies, and shareholders are also be going to be getting a dividend as well. So, yeah, looks good for GW. Uh, my thoughts on that very quickly is, yes, their initial forecast uh, from 2000, October 2018, that was when we assumed that the change in UK trading conditions was going to be much sooner than it has since turned out to be. So, yeah, time indeed. will tell. Yeah, um, also... Um, just to, in the last couple of days, ICV2 have put together their uh, hobby game sales in the US and Canada stats. This is a bit of an estimate from ICV2. They tend to interview different people in the industry to get an idea of how well those companies are doing. So they're estimating that the, there's a 
the total industry to, of hobby games took $1.495 billion in 2018, which is down 3% versus a year ago. Um, that decline is mostly being driven by a 14% decline in collectible games. Now, collectible games include sort of cards, minis, dice, collectible games. The rest of the hobby game market finances are made up of miniatures, non-collectible, board games, card dice games, and role-playing games. A couple of interesting stats that we can see. There's a pro version of this information that we can't get access to because we don't pay for ICV2. If you do, there might be a lot more information to find out. But uh, board games are up 7% to 370 million from 345 million. So they are they are definitely on the rise. And RPGs are one of the most significant categories. They're up 18%. Now, they're still quite small. They're only taking $65 million compared to board games. Uh, but that's up from 55 million the year before. So yeah, hobbies on the rise, definitely. The collectible side of it, less so. I think people are much more wary about that kind of game, really. And I, I do wonder if that affects something like Magic the Gathering. If Magic the Gathering is a large part of that decline, it'd be interesting to see Wizards' results when those come out. I think one thing to be said about that is it might just reflect where the growth in the market is. The growth yeah. is bringing a lot of new people into the industry, bringing a lot of new people into the hobby. That's going up. Maybe long-standing members of the hobby that spent a lot of their money on these longer running series maybe that maybe that isn't a clue yeah absolutely yeah like sort of the hardcore that the collect a lot of games are not the major part i mean like as, as a few people have pointed out over the last year or so like there's a huge untapped market out there for a lot of games that we just don't see like the board game geek population is not all of board gaming or card gaming by a long shot and appealing to a more casual market to a, a more a wider market is going to see you get a lot more people on board and that can only be a good thing for the hobby in the end and finally on the financial news kickstarter has broken one billion dollars with its games category now this covers both tabletop games and computer games uh, 3.2 million people have pledged money to almost 17,000 game related products since 2009 and Amazingly, 69% of this is tabletop games. That's 686 million compared to video games taking 236 million. The rest covers are playing cards, gaming hardware, mobile games, and live games, which I presume is things like organized LARPs and that kind of thing. Like I know LARPs and I know mega that. games, know, possibly. Yeah, LARPs and mega games. I know the Harry Potter sort of style wizard school in Poland was funded through Kickstarter, so I assume it would cover that kind of thing. But yeah, that's just an astounding amount of money and the fact that tabletop games is significantly larger than video games is quite astonishing really the question of the day is how much does art matter to a game there are obviously a lot of factors that go into making a great game but increasingly we're seeing games that look and feel better better components better graphic design and better art and does this trend leave great games with less good art or mediocre art, if you will, on the sidelines. Well, what do you what do you think about this, Ross? I mean, I, you, you're you're the art critic amongst us. We bow down uh, and, to your superior knowledge. You, you've yeah recently run that competition to sort of public vote to show the best art. Do you think that games can still get away with like having more interesting or mediocre art? Like there was a lot of like one of my favorite games of the last year was Escape the Dark Castle. A lot of people didn't like the art in that because it harked back to that sort of fighting fantasy '80s kind of aesthetic, which is a very particular aesthetic. But a lot of people didn't like that. Is that just an aesthetic thing, or could that art just be better? Or so Escape the Dark Castle is an example of a very uh, 
intentional art style. So yeah. the 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 art style, it's kind of you know it's it's uh, divisive. So some people didn't get on with it very much. But it was intentionally that scratchy, scrawly, fighting fantasy mm. kind of flicking through a book kind of illustrative style. And I personally liked that. Um, I think something that, you know, people need to be aware of. For me personally, I don't buy games, and this is a strange thing for me to say, but it's true. I don't buy games just because the art's good. Fundamentally, you have to play it. And you'll never get away from the fact that a play is a huge part of it. However, in an era where crowdfunding has become such a big thing, like we've just covered in you know the financial news, when you go side by side or toe to toe, your game looks ugly, another game looks good, you're both doing similar things, who's going to come out on top? I think we know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's, it's that sort of like the first, first bite is with the eye kind of thing, that, that look of like... If you're a small indie publisher with like just a sort of very basic prototype, then and you're beside Seaborn at a con, then obviously they're going to get all the people coming to their stand because they're a massive company with cool art. I, I think, think there's just oh, go on, sorry, Jamie. I was going to say I just think there's also a, a possibility of maybe slightly older games with maybe slightly less, let's say, snappy art. Um, maybe being slightly sidelined i mean i've kind of said and little spoiler for anyone who wants to listen to the idle thoughts podcast uh, which is free to all our patreon backers why don't you go and support us on patreon you wonderful wonderful people but i initially saw the game las vegas by rudiger dorn and i looked at the the art from the ravensburger uh, edition and went that game doesn't interest me and i think i went because it looks slightly older and i'm not sure if it's the kind of thing i like and then I sat down and actually played the game and went, this is a fantastic wee game. So I, I know I'm guilty of it, at least. But then also word of mouth is so important. And one that I springs to mind immediately is Ethnos, which is a game that has received a lot of praise from various se- uh, corners of the board game community. But they've also gone, overall, it is not a visually appealing game. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I remember in the early days when I was getting into the hobby of cheap-ass games, and they would put out basically little uh, sort of A A five packets, which were the game, and it was fairly sort of thin card. The art was pretty basic on a lot of the stuff. The the, the art was of, of a particular style again, uh, but it, like all the components didn't feel very nice. But there were games in there, and they were only like sort of five ten quid. I just don't know if you could get away with that kind of production anymore at all. Like, would that just disappear into a bin, or would there still be a place for that kind of sort of something that looks very homemade almost? Here, are, here are my thoughts on it in like a broad strokes kind of thing. So, obviously, uh, the, we can't deny there's a lot of games that come out every year. It's no. it's it's a really competitive marketplace now in terms of board game releases. So, looking good's going to help you stand out from the crowd. However. The more time and money you put into graphic design and artwork and components, the more expensive a product's going to become. And, and the, what happens is you get a marketplace with more expensive games. And we've seen that across the board with yeah. board game releases. Board games are getting more expensive. And, you know, it's an entertainment industry. So there's a large part of the argument that, you know, there's a market for it. This is what people want. But then you look at something like cheap ass games and you look at games that have lower production quality, uh, lower quality components. 
And I still think there's a place for that, but it gets harder for them to stand out and to be recognized because you've got all these flashy games coming out that have incredible art on the cover. Um, you know, but I would say there's a good example of an older game. Uh, and Jamie said, you know, he played an older game and you can breathe new life into older games by giving them a fresh coat of paint. So Osprey Games, for example, did an excellent job with uh, High Society, which was a game that originally came out in the mid-90s that everyone had pretty much forgotten about. Um, and they gave it a new release with uh, Art Nouveau, art by someone called Medusa Dollmaker. And I think that's only about 15 quid. And, you know, for a small box card game, that's not going to cost you the world. But they did such an incredible job with the art. Everyone was raving about that game. Everyone was talking about that yeah. game again. And that's a prime example of what difference art can make to like raising mm. the profile of something. But I, I, as much as I love art and graphic design and it elevates the product massively, I do also understand that you're pricing so many people out of the, the community and the industry because not everyone's got that kind of money to throw at games. Yeah, we, we often forget because we're, we're all hobbyists on this cast and most of our guests will be as well, is that board games are effectively a luxury product. And they are get as you say, they are getting more and more luxury, especially with Kickstarter. We are seeing games hit stratospheric amounts of money. I mean, you and I both own Gloomhaven, Ross. And <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. that is an expensive game. And the art in that even the art on that is quite device. I mean, I quite like it, but it's very it, it's quite sort of brown and red and it is like for some people that's not, not an attractive game. For some for others it is. It's a good point in high society. Like giving giving old games a new look of paint is a really good way to bring back old designs that were really popular at a particular time. People have maybe forgotten about and just breathing new life into them. The raison d'etre of restoration games, pretty much. Rob yeah, Davio's uh, company taking old games and restoring them with games like Downforce and Fireball Island. Yeah, yeah, and that, that it's definitely a good way to do that. Yeah. I, I, really, I do wonder if you could get away with something like cheap ass still I, I don't know you could really like you say it'd be hard to stand out in that crowd of, of games that come out every year i'm really torn on it because as much as i love games to look good I, I know what that means and i know what that costs and when you get so many different people involved in the production of something and so many talented people you know mm. skilled people how do you still maintain a low price point if you're only printing a certain number of copies and most yeah. games will only really have one print run probably and so how do you justify getting these incredibly talented illustrators in, in graphic designers flashbox art all that kind of stuff how do you how do you just how do you put that into a low price point without passing it on to the consumer yeah i, th I think that's maybe a question for another time yeah <laughs> it's, it's a big it's, it's a big question it's a big question. It, is, it is a big question yeah largely we agree that we like games to look good but it's not the be all and end all, you know. Fundamentally, yeah. we we've got to join an experience. I think with board game art, this is what I always come back to with with any of it is it good graphic design and good art help marry the theme, marry the theme to the mechanics. So it helps the like when you go back and you play an old video game, it's a bit jarring for the first couple of minutes. But if the game's still good, you're still yeah. gonna have a good time. So it's the initial. The initial response that you'll have to it might be a bit like oh it hurts my eyes but then you know if the, if it's a good game it's a good game you can play games with the, you can play with a deck of cards you can have a great night so well it's that time of the podcast again where we're gonna look for monopoly news and oh wait what's that i see 
glowing above the horizon. Oh yes, it's a brand. <laughs> no. Oh. Yes, yes. Keep going. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. We have more Monopoly news. Oh, I know people will be happy about this. And in keeping with the soon to be announced soon to be announced soon to be released Lion King remake by John Favreau from Disney. We have Lion King Monopoly announced. <laughs> I've never had a backing for this. This is wonderful. Thank you, Ross. But oh yes, we are having we we have Lion King Monopoly coming out. Where you'll be able to play as a shiny golden figure of Simba, Nala, Mufasa, Scar, Timon, or indeed Pumba. Oh yes, chance and community cards are instead replaced by destiny cards. Utilities are herds of rhino, elephant, antelope, and wildebeest. I assume they mean stations. And how could you get even better? Well, I can tell you how it's going to get even better. There is a musical soundtrack to accompany the game. In the same way as the, the Game of Thrones Monopoly had a card holder that played the Game of Thrones theme, there's a plastic pride rock where you store cards, and it'll play the circle of life whenever uh, you play it. At all. Oh no. Wow. Yes. Oh. Yes. The 25th anniversary of Does it Lion also project King. a picture of or a it, video it, of Elton John onto your wall singing Circle of Life? Do you know what? I think that's going to be in the that deluxe really edition. Yeah. The, the, the deluxe edition. Be... Elton John personally comes around holographic Elton John. <laughs> Oof. But uh, it will release in America. Uh, Monopoly the Lion King edition, that is. Will release on April the 22nd. Uh, so it'll already be out by the time this cast comes out. Alongside the and new, slightly creepy come to... CGI film. Mm-mm-mm. Yes. It's, 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 yes. it's live and action, it will be. it's not, because it's still animated, but just animated well, It's not, because way. there's nobody live. Uh, and it should be going to other... It'll be going to Walmart in April, 22, uh, April 22nd in America, and other retailers will get it probably from June onward. So if you're in the UK, watch this space. If you're in America... Other stores where that sell board games are available. Well, I think that's just about all we have time for on this episode of Brainwaves. But before we go, we'd just like to give a big shout out to our executive producers, the Lucky Sparrow Gaming Cafe. And if you would like to uh, join them in being executive producers on the show, then you can join our Patreon. For only $1 a month, you'll get an extended version of this cast. And this particular one's going to be very extended. And uh, sorry, for $2 sorry. a month... <laughs> Ross and Jamie talked a lot, has to be said. Don't apologise, no, don't apologise. You and I, we're, we're the, the waffle Please. masters. Uh, for $2 a month, you'll get access to our Idle Thoughts podcast, which is myself, Jamie, and our one of our guests. In this case, it's Ross talking about the games we have played recently. And for $5 a month, you become an executive producer, which gives you all those benefits and other stuff if and when we get around to making things. So we've been given badges and merch and that kind of thing out to our executive producers so far. And you'll also get a podcast shout out every podcast we do. Uh, Ross, where can people find you on the internet of things? Well, if you are so inclined and you're interested in reading more, uh, not about my opinions, but about board game art itself so on my website moregamesplease.com that's moregamesplease.com uh, i've interviewed over 50 different illustrators from the board game industry just talking about how they got into board game illustration the different processes what they've done the challenges they've faced all these different amazing projects they've worked on and i've had most of the biggest names in the industry so you should go check that out or if you like uh, strictly just pictures without those pesky words getting in the way uh you can follow me on instagram where i take photos of things and sometimes make them look real nice 
He does indeed make them look real nice. Well, thanks very much for listening, everyone. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is to share the podcast and drop us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Giant Brain, Instagram, Giant Brain UK. Our Facebook is just The Giant Brain. Website is giantbrain.co.uk. And you can get in touch with us about anything on the show through our email, which is giantbrainuk at gmail.com. We'd like to thank Ross very much for coming along and joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Ross. That's very good of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been great fun. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye.